in writing to the Philippians, the Apostle Paul said this, in humility, consider others more important than yourself. Do not merely look, for your own, look out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Well, Johnny had his mind set on reaching the World Series, which is a driving priority and a worthwhile goal for a manager in the Major League Baseball. He had played 11 seasons in the bigs as a catcher for the Orioles, the Braves, the Phillies, and the Yankees. But now it was April 1995, and Johnny Oates was just starting his very first season as the general manager for the Texas Rangers. But in the opening weeks of his first season, his wife Gloria was hospitalized with emotional and physical exhaustion. The timing could not have been worse. But Johnny had already decided that baseball would no longer be his God. The choice in front of him really wasn't all that difficult, and he courageously asked for a leave of absence to be with his wife. His assistant coaches could handle the dugout. Only he could be a husband to Gloria. Johnny stood by his wife, and the Rangers stood by Johnny. And he went on to lead the Rangers that year to their first American League West crown, and the American League named him Manager of the Year. But I think Gloria named him Husband of a Lifetime. Now this morning we are continuing on in our series through the New Testament book of Philippians. And for the last few weeks we have been focused on, almost with a laser-like focus, on this humble servanthood, captivated by this tremendously inspiring example of Jesus. Jesus, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, was fully God, equal with God the Father in every possible way. And when the father asked the son to come to earth and take on human flesh and sacrifice himself so that man could be forgiven and saved, Jesus did so voluntarily. Jesus did not consider his equality with God a thing to be grasped. But instead, because he loved the world so much, he made himself nothing, took on the nature of a servant, and became obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. And Paul pointed us to that example set by Jesus and said to, said to each of us, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Should be the same. Humble servanthood. As you live each day and interact with people around you, your words and actions towards people should be the same as Jesus. And then Paul spelled it out for us. What would that exactly look like? He said, do nothing from selfish ambition and vain conceit, but in humility, consider others more important than yourself. Do not look out only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Doing everything without complaining, grumbling, and arguing. Remember that? And just to add a further point of clarity. Paul was not saying that this is how we should just interact with other believers inside the church. Mm -mm -mm. Paul is saying that Jesus's beautiful attitude of humble servanthood should be shared with everyone that we come in contact with. 
every person, every conversation, and every phone call, every email, every text, every online post, every conference room table we sit around, every sidewalk we walk on, and every grocery aisle we browse. Now, half-hearted followers, they might choose humble servanthood if it was convenient or if they had something to gain through it. But wholehearted followers, wholehearted followers, they will seek to bring the attitude of Jesus into every word and thought and action throughout their day. They want to bless every single person they can with a dose of humble servanthood. And as Paul wrote this section of his letter, I think he may have anticipated that some of the Philippian believers would begin responding to this portion of his letter with alarm and even some concern. Some of them might be thinking to themselves, I don't know if I can do that, Paul. I mean, I'm not a spiritual rock star like you are. And besides, you don't know my boss. You don't know my neighbor. You haven't met my spouse. Paul knew that some readers uh, of his letter, some of the believers in Philippi, would read this and they would dismiss this idea of having the same attitude as that of Jesus as being too hard, it's too pie in the sky, and it's simply not possible in the real world where I live. What you are asking is just too hard if you understood my circumstances. Or some might say, well, Paul, Jesus could live that way. Of course you point to Jesus. He was God. He could, you know, he was divine. Being equal with God the Father, he could do all of that. But ordinary men like me, ordinary women like me, we, we can't do that. We can't live that way. Jesus could do it. And you apostles, maybe you could do that. Probably a few pastors, elders, and some monks who are living amongst the monastery. But not ordinary folks like me. I'm no superstar, Paul. I'm just an average, ordinary, everyday person. And I think Paul anticipated that some of the Philippians would begin to think like that and maybe even push back a little bit. And I think he smiled as he wrote because he already knew that some of these excuses were going to come. He knew the kinds of struggles that they would describe and the exasperation that he would hear in their voices. But the truth is they could do it. They could. And Paul knew that they could. Why? He told us earlier. He said, because it is God who is at work in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. God, the Holy Spirit, was at work in the Philippian believers. Not only giving them the ability to do what Paul is asking, but even giving them the desire to do it, the want to, to do it. He who began a good work in them would be faithful to complete it, giving them both the want to and the can do to get it done. And just to show the Philippians that this was so, in verses 19 through 30, which we're going to look at today, Paul points to two living examples, two ordinary, average believers, a couple of ordinary guys who lived the attitude of Christ every day with the help of the Holy Spirit. Paul wanted the churches, 
the church in Philippi and our church here in Princeton to see that this attitude of humble servanthood is not only desirable, it is doable. It can be done. The Holy Spirit will help us. And God who is at work in us will enable us, giving us the ability to will and to act upon this teaching. So that as we fix our eyes on Jesus and cooperate with the Holy Spirit, our minds will be renewed a little bit each day. And the mindset of humble servanthood will begin to flourish and grow in our thinking and in our hearts and in our attitudes and in our behaviors. And it will slowly become the natural response of our hearts. And again, to show that this was possible, Paul points to two servants that the Philippian church knew very well. Points to two guys, and they know these two guys really well. In a way, Paul was saying, if you want to see the attitude of Christ lived out each day, if you want to see how to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, elevating the importance of others and looking out for the interest of others without complaining and arguing, if you want to see that, then I give you Timothy and Epaphroditus. Two concrete examples of ordinary guys, average people who have adopted this attitude of Christ even while living in the thick of everyday circumstances. And so in verses 19 to 23, Paul is going to hold up Timothy as an example for us. And then in verses 24 to 30, he's going to affirm Epaphroditus. So let's take a look at what Paul says about these two men, and we'll see what the Lord wants to teach us together this morning. So let's start with verse 19. Paul says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I may also be cheered when I receive news about you. So if you remember from a couple of weeks back, Timothy was the young man that Paul had met 10 years earlier when he went, when he was on his way to Philippi. They had stopped at a little town called Lystra on their way, and they met Timothy. And Paul invited Timothy to join their travel crew, and Timothy became Paul's protege. Now, the Philippians had known Timothy for about a decade now, because remember, the letter to Philippi is being written about 10 years later. So they've known Timothy for about a decade. And they have come to love him. They love him as a brother in the Lord. And to respect him because he is a faithful partner in uh, Paul's ministry. Timothy had learned much from Paul. And had grown significantly in his faith and leadership in the years that he had spent with Paul. Such that Paul had actually entrusted him with different ministry assignments over the years. At one time, Paul had sent Timothy on ahead to the church in Corinth. At another time, he had sent him to the church in Thessalonica. And at the time of the writing of this letter, Timothy was actually with Paul in Rome, but Timothy was not imprisoned. Now, at some point in the future, Paul intends to send Timothy to Philippi. And that's how news traveled. That's how it was sent and received 
uh, back in the first century. They didn't have digital conveniences like we do with phones and email, texting, FaceTime, and online messaging. Many of you received updates either by text message, uh, either from me or from the church about how Christy was doing this week. So easy for us to communicate now with digital convenience and technology. But they didn't have that back then. They had to write a letter, give it to a person who would then travel whatever distance was required and deliver it to who was ever the recipient. And in this particular case, a letter go leaving Rome and going to Philippi, that required several weeks of travel. Philippi was about a 40-day journey away from Rome, nearly 600 miles. So just to be clear, Paul is sending Epaphroditus back, and he's going to carry this letter to the Philippian church. And the letter is going to indicate that Timothy is coming later. And so the Philippians could anticipate Timothy's arrival and even, planned, and even planned for it. For they love Timothy every bit as much as they love Paul. And further, Paul was confident that the Philippian church would be responsive to the different instructions that he had provided in this letter. And so he believed that when Timothy visited at a later date, Paul fully expected that Timothy would have much good news to report back to him when he returned. Now, in verses 20 to 22, Paul affirms Timothy's compassion and his competency. Look at these verses. Paul says, I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served me in the work of the gospel. I have no one else like him, Paul says. Literally, that means I have no one of equal soul. Some of your uh, versions probably say, I, I don't have anybody with a kindred spirit. That's the idea. Timothy stood out amongst this travel team, partly because Timothy took a genuine interest in the welfare of the Philippians. And, and when I say that, I don't mean to suggest that the rest of the team didn't have a genuine interest. I, they did. I, I just simply mean that Timothy shared Paul's deep, deep love for the Philippians. Timothy was there 10 years ago when the church started. And now, a decade later, Timothy shares Paul's zeal for the churches at the deepest of levels. And so he and Paul have this kindred spirit together. Timothy was not being forced to go back to Philippi. He wanted to go back. And so at some point, Paul would send him. T Timothy was eager to visit this church again. He was truly concerned about their well-being. And he and Paul loved this church and cared about each believer in it. Now in verse 21, Paul laments. There's kind of a lament here. He laments the default human condition that he sees all around him. He says, everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. That's kind of the default human condition because of our sin. The natural human tendency is to say, serve yourself first, make sure all your needs are met, all your bases are covered, and then and only then 
look after others. And so self-centered concern seemed to be the norm around the streets of Rome. The problem was, is it was true in Rome, not just in the city, but even in the church. Even in the church in Rome, that was true. From his house, Paul had inquired and probably interviewed a number of people, scores of people maybe, looking for someone to send back to Philippi. But to his dismay, Paul found the believers in Rome consumed with self. He could find no one of a kindred spirit. Everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But Timothy wasn't like this. Timothy was different. Timothy modeled the humble servanthood of Christ. And as a result, he stood out amongst the others. Remember Paul's phrase from, I think it was last week, or two weeks ago? He said, he shines like stars in the nighttime sky. In verse 22, Paul commends Timothy as one who had proved himself. Paul had worked with this young man for 10 years now. And he could vouch for Timothy's skill and his competency. This phrase, proved himself, means that Timothy remained faithful even in the face of hardship. His mettle had been tested as through fire. And he was repeatedly and consistently found trustworthy. And beyond that, beyond just his trustworthiness, a special bond had formed between Paul and Timothy over those 10 years, like a father and a son. It was very similar to the kind of relationship that had formed between Elijah and Elisha in the Old Testament. Over the, these last 10 years, Paul and Timothy had traveled together, they'd shared the gospel together, they endured hardship and faced adversity together. They had started churches together and worked through conflict and difficulty together always encouraging and strengthening each other in the Lord. And during those times when Paul had been imprisoned, it was Timothy who most often served Paul to meet his needs. And you have to understand, first century prisons were not pleasant. They kind of used whatever they could, whatever space they could, as a holding cell. Maybe it was an old cistern or an abandoned cave or an unused room in a building. Any of those could serve as prisons. Many of them, if not most of them, were dark, damp, dirty, rancid, rat-infested, disease-filled, due in part to the fact that they had no bathroom facilities. Believe me when I tell you, to love and care for someone in prison, as Timothy did for Paul back in those days, required a whole new level of humble servanthood. But Paul says in every situation, Timothy has proved himself and he has served Paul faithfully as a son to a dearly beloved father. And as Paul was now under house arrest, the conditions he was in were a little bit better, but Timothy had stayed right by his side, serving Paul in every way he could for the work of the gospel. Timothy was a kindred spirit. He had proved his mettle in daily struggles. He had been tested and tried and faced fierce opposition in ministry life. And Paul said, he has proven himself to us. And in verse 23, 
Paul says, I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. Okay? I look forward to sending him, hope to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. See, Paul still had need of Timothy's help while he was in prison. And he couldn't spare this trusted friend until the verdict of his trial had been decided and carried out. But Paul hopes to send Timothy soon afterwards. Notice, though, Paul doesn't promise. He makes his plans humbly. He speaks tentatively. And he spoke of them cautiously, simply because he didn't know what the next day would bring, which is true on any given day, right? But Paul understood that any plans that he articulated in this letter would ultimately be governed by God's will concerning the outcome of Paul's trial. And so, Paul says, I hope, therefore, to send uh, him to you, and, and uh, that he is confident in the Lord. So Paul holds up Timothy to us as a flesh and blood example of someone living out humble servanthood just like Jesus did. Paul wanted the Philippians to know that Timothy was selfless. He was living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. He had set aside selfish ambition and vain conceit. He was counting others as more important than himself and he looked out for the interest of others. Timothy was doing all of this. For more than a decade, Paul had watched as Timothy had increasingly put on the attitude of Christ. He had put on the serving towel, just as Christ had done. And as Timothy was working out his salvation with fear and trembling, and as he was doing and serving without complaining or arguing, he was shining like stars in the dark world around him. And Paul says, in a way, Paul says, and if an ordinary guy like Timothy can live this way, a guy that you know really well, so can the rest of us. So can the rest of us. In verses 24 to 30, Paul now gives a second example. He affirms Epaphroditus as another flesh and blood example of the average person living in humble servanthood. So let's look at these verses together, beginning with verse 24. He says, I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. So just like he did back in chapter 1, verse 25, Paul, I think, has a sense that the Lord's work for him in this life is not yet finished. Paul has more work to do. God has more assignments for him. And because of that, Paul expresses again what I would call this cautious confidence that if the Lord is willing, he will survive the imprisonment and be united with the Philippians. He says, I am confident in the Lord. It's that idea of if the Lord wills. But Paul has no idea when this will happen. Since he doesn't know when a verdict in his trial is, is reached or what that verdict might be. And therefore he prepares to send Epaphroditus back to Philippi. Let's look at verses 25 to 30. He says, I think it's necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, my fellow worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. 
But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honor men like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you couldn't give to me. So if you remember, when the Philippian church first heard that Paul was imprisoned again in Rome, they quickly collected an offering for him and called upon Epaphroditus to make that journey, that 600-mile journey, to take the gift of money to Paul. You see, first century jails didn't provide for the basic necessities of their prisoners. If Paul needed food or clothing or a blanket, he needed to pay for those supplies. So when the Philippians provided this financial gift for him, it provided for the most basic and fundamental needs Paul would need in prison. And additionally, Epaphroditus was sent and he was commissioned to stay with Paul indefinitely. You stay with him and serve him and meet his physical and spiritual needs while he is in prison. Stay with him until the end, until he uh, is either released or executed. But don't leave him. Like Timothy, Epaphroditus had put other people's needs above his own. He put his life in Philippi on hold indefinitely in order to travel 600 miles to Rome so that he could minister to Paul in prison. But now Epaphroditus is returning home early. His assignment incomplete, at least it seems incomplete, right? Because Paul is still in prison. And in an honor-shame culture like Philippi, most people would see his early return as a complete failure of his mission, and he would be shamed. They would see it as a dishonorable end to his commission, that he had abandoned Paul in the face of difficulty, and they would size up Epaphroditus and label him a quitter or a loser. And his return home would have been unwelcomed and ridiculed and criticized happens in an honor-shame culture. And if that happened, Paul says, it would have been a horrible misunderstanding of the facts. Epaphroditus deserved a hero's welcome, Paul says. And he called upon the church to respond to Epaphroditus in just that way. Paul, Epaphroditus had served Paul exceedingly well, and Paul held him in high regard. And it was important for the Philippian church to know that. So in writing about Epaphroditus in verse 25, Paul uses five titles of honor, five different titles to, to give Epaphroditus honor. First, he says, uh, he refers to him as my brother. It's my brother. The meaning of that is that he is a brother in the Lord. He's a fellow church member. We have both been adopted into the family of God. He is a brother to me, fellow believer. Next, he says, I see him as a fellow worker, one who labored beside Paul, laboring tirelessly, earnestly. This was a man who gave his best for the cause of Christ. 
Paul said, you need to know how hard this man worked. I, I count him as a fellow worker because he worked as hard as I did. Third, he calls Epaphroditus a fellow soldier. And by this he means one who endured hardships faithfully. The hardships of a spiritual battle. For indeed, we are in a spiritual battle, and Paul would write about that in a letter to another church. He, Paul would say, the spiritual battle that we are in is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces that fight against the kingdom of God. And Epaphroditus has joined me in that fight and has endured hardship and been faithful in the, in the face of fierce opposition and adversity. He is a fellow soldier, and you need to receive him back as that. Fourth, he calls him your messenger. Paul says, this is your messenger. He came from Philippi. He's from your church. He's one of your own. And he was sent to faithfully convey a message of love and to faithfully serve me in my need. And he did exactly that, Paul says. He did exactly that. He was your messenger. He was your faithful messenger. And finally, Paul says, he, he, uh, he calls him a minister. Um, that he served to meet, he served his needs. Paul says he ministered to me. In, in that the idea is that Epaphroditus even had kind of a priestly function as he worked with Paul, caring for Paul's spiritual needs. And so you understand in each of these di five different roles, Epaphroditus had been faithful and diligent. Paul had found him trustworthy and dependent, dependable. And so Paul uses these titles of honor to express deep appreciation and thankfulness for the service that Epaphroditus had provided. But Paul also wants to leave no doubt in the mind of the Philippian church that Epaphroditus is returning to Philippi with Paul's blessing. Paul says, he's coming back to you with my blessing. Paul was not sending him home early because he was disappointed with Epaphroditus. Not at all. Not at all. And he didn't want the church to think that that might be the case. Paul was trying to do what he believed was best for everyone involved. Paul tells us in verses 26 and 27 that Epaphroditus had become quite ill. And when the Philippians had heard about it, they were quite distressed. And their concern was well-founded, Paul says, because Epaphroditus almost died. But God had had mercy on him. And so Epaphroditus fully recovered. But, but, when Epaphroditus heard of the church's distress for him, he became deeply concerned in response to them. And so there was all this emotion going on and this concern for one another. And, and again, news didn't travel fast. They couldn't just text one another and say, hey, everything's okay, we're good. So it took weeks to get any kind of word on what was going on. And so concern would brew and, uh, and grow. So, in Paul writes in verse 28, he says, therefore, I am all the more eager to send him. Notice, Epaphroditus was not asking to go home. He was not asking to be released from his work. Paul takes full responsibility so that if there's any concern about an incomplete mission or did was Paul abandoned in prison? That falls squarely on Paul's shoulders. Paul takes all the responsibility for this. This was not a failure by Epaphroditus. This was 100% 
Paul's decision. And so again, in this decision, we even see the Apostle Paul modeling what he was teaching, don't we? He was placing the needs of Epaphroditus and the needs of the Philippian church above his own, doing what was best for them, not what was best for himself. And so he calls upon the Philippian church to welcome Epaphroditus back in the Lord with great joy and gladness, Paul says. Rejoice and celebrate when he walks through your doors. Embrace him. Encourage him. And honor men like him, he says. Honor men like him. Because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help that you were not able to give. In Paul's mind, Epaphroditus stood in the same tradition of proven character as Timothy did, as he worked to be faithful, even in the midst of a life-threatening illness, teetering on the brink of death. So Paul says, this man risked everything. He risked everything left his life in Philippi, came here. Exposed himself to great danger and nearly lost his life. Men like Epaphroditus are worthy of honor. So receive him with honor. So in this final section, Paul holds up Epaphroditus as a flesh and blood example of someone living out humble servanthood of Jesus. Again, Paul wants the Philippians to know that this can be done, this attitude of Christ can be adopted and applied and lived out every day by average, ordinary people. Look at Timothy. Look at Epaphroditus. And Paul wants the Philippians to know that Epaphroditus counted others as more important than himself, and he looked out for the interests of others. From the moment he had set foot on Roman soil, Epaphroditus had increasingly put on the attitude of Christ and taken on the very nature of a servant, becoming obedient to the point of death. He became obedient even to the point of death. And he did so without complaining or arguing. And Paul says to the Philippians, if an ordinary guy like Epaphroditus can live this way, so can the rest of us. We can do this. The attitude of Christ is not just desirable, it's doable. We can do this. Now, in the minutes that remain, let me show you how a passage like this still applies today. And I just want to give you two points of application to consider. And the first one is this. Humble servanthood is most faithfully lived in the ordinariness of life. Humble servanthood is most faithfully lived in the ordinariness of life. Sometimes we're tempted to think that if we're going to be faithful, we need to demonstrate our faithfulness in some dramatic or sensational way. Big, like David and Goliath big. But here's the truth. Here's the truth. Faithfulness does not always look extraordinary. Faithfulness doesn't always look sensational. Faithful Christian living is rarely lived in the spotlight or on center stage or in front of a news camera. Most of the time, 
most of the time, our faithfulness to put on the attitude of Christ is lived out in the, mun- excuse me, in the mundane, average, ordinary happenings of every day. That's where we need to be faithful. Many years ago, a man described it this way. He said, the idea of giving my life for Christ feels heroic. To pour out my life for others, to pay the ultimate price of martyrdom, I'll do it. I'm ready, Lord, to go out in a blaze of glory. He said, we think giving our all to the Lord is like laying $1,000 on the table and saying, here's my life. It's everything I've got. Use it all. But the reality for most of us is that God sends us to the bank and he has us cash in that $1,000 for $1,000 in quarters. And then he asks us to go through life putting out 25 cents here and 50 cents here and be faithful with that quarter, be faithful with this quarter. I want you to listen to the neighbor's kid's troubles instead of saying, get lost, kid. I want you to put a cup of cold water in the shaking hand of a man in a nursing home. Friends, usually giving our life to Christ isn't done in some extraordinary way. It's usually done with small acts of love, 25 cents at a time. Here's what Timothy and Epaphroditus teach us today. Having the attitude of Christ, Jesus, means being faithful to Christ in the ordinary Uh, in the ordinary, mundane, everyday activities of life, just giving out a quarter at a time, being faithful with the 25 cents at a time. Does that make sense? It happens when we invite a lonely neighbor to our home for dinner or babysit. We babysit for a single mom or we visit someone in a nursing home or we send somebody a note of encouragement or we help somebody pack up and move to another location or we spend time with a foreign exchange student or we sit at the lunch table in the cafeteria with somebody who normally sits alone. This is what it looks like when ordinary average people put on the attitude of Christ. Very rarely is humble servanthood performed in the spotlight. It is most frequently lived and most desperately needed in the ordinariness of life, one quarter at a time. One final thought for you this morning. The humble servanthood of Timothy and Epaphroditus reminds us to faithfully support our missionaries. The humble servanthood of Timothy and Epaphroditus reminds us to faithfully support our missionaries. These two men served faithfully and tirelessly. And with the attitude of Christ, they tended to Paul's needs while he was in prison, serving faithfully every day. And almost always behind the scenes, never in the limelight. And Paul wants the church to know, uh, he wants the church to honor these men because of how they have served. When they come back to Philippi, welcome them in the Lord and honor such men. In the same way, friends, our church supports missionaries who serve locally and around the world. These men and women have placed the needs of others above their own desires. And they faithfully serve these men and women, young and old, each day without grumbling or complaining, clothed in the humble servanthood of Christ. And whenever they have the opportunity to visit us 
and to share with us about their ministry, we have the chance to do for them exactly what Paul is asking the church of Philippi to do for Timothy and Epaphroditus. Welcome them, encourage them, support them, love them, and honor men and women like this. Honor them. In two weeks, in two weeks, on June 27th, we're going to have an opportunity to do exactly this. Buck Gray, who serves with the local uh, chapter of Young Life, and Dan and Jen Whitlock, who are part of our church family and serve with Central American Missions Projects. They are going to be joining us that morning to share what God has been doing in their ministries. And this is going to be a great opportunity for us to welcome them in the Lord and to encourage them and love them and to show them honor and to strengthen our partnership with them in the gospel. Some of you remember how Paul talked about his partnership in the gospel with the Philippians. And we could sense when he talked about that how deeply meaningful that was to him and how it encouraged him. Well, friends, we have a chance to offer that same kind of encouragement, the same sense of connection and camaraderie to our missionaries in a couple of weeks. And so I want to urge you to mark the 27th on your calendar. Please don't miss that morning. Please come and join us and be a part of that so we can love and support and encourage these folks who are giving and doing the work of the Lord every single day. And I want to encourage you again, even as I did a few weeks ago, to be able to pray for, to be faithful, to pray for our missionaries, to read their newsletters when they come so that we can learn about their ministries. Write to them, send birthday cards, anniversary cards, Christmas cards, and especially encouragement cards. May we joyfully partner with our missionaries. And may God use us to strengthen and embolden them and enable them to stand firm until the end, just as the Philippian church did for Paul and for Timothy and for Epaphroditus. Let's pray. And then the worship team is going to come and close our service. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the examples that uh, your Holy Spirit inspired in the scriptures with Timothy and Epaphroditus. May the attitude of Christ consume us, motivating us to serve with joy in the ordinary, everyday events of life, 25 cents at a time. God, may we serve you faithfully without complaining or arguing and without men's applause and without men's attention. May we just be faithful each day in the little things. And may our church family grow in our partnership in the gospel with our missionaries. May we love them and serve them and support them, not just with our words, but with our actions. And may you bless their work for the advance of your kingdom and for the worship of your great name. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.